0: Of you who were at the, uh, the Happy Minion yesterday, a couple people heard this, but it's, a, it's an important thing, and, and I want to use it as an introduction for uh, trying to sort out our feelings for how to approach uh, Tisha Because it's a very emotionally, it's a very, very complicated day. Very complicated. And um, not only that, but I think it's uh, representative in a way of what it means to be a Jew in this world altogether. Because you're balancing two very opposite extremes of emotion. Um, I, I joke. There's a famous quote. I wish I could tell you who said it, which is that Jews are like everybody else in the world, only more so. And so, so tish above is like every other time in the year, um, philosophically or existentially or however you want to say it, only more so because you've got you've got uh, even greater extremes coming to play, which is basically the two. Central uh, components of our vision of the world, which is which is the perfected state of the world, and the fact that we're and the fact that we're not quite there yet. Um, so, in other words, in other words, in other words, redemption and exile are these two states that were that were existing amidst constantly, but you never see them as starkly juxtapo- juxtaposed. As, as on Tisha B'Av and so for that reason for that reason it's, it's informative to understand how we're supposed to feel on Tisha B'Av because it really gives you a state or, or, or a look into how we're supposed to exist the entire, the, the entire rest of the year or, 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 or our whole lives so let's start from the beginning so, so a lot of people don't feel anything on Tisha B'Av let's be honest they, they feel absolutely nothing and they say Tisha B'Av is, is commemorating, commemorating ancient events and why am I supposed to feel anything? So on this, the Katsuka Rebbe says that that person has to cry over the fact that they're feeling nothing. You know, that in itself is a heartbreaking thing. If you don't feel anything, you have to cry over the fact that you're feeling nothing. So so that's number one. So, so, so the person who feels nothing, we say to them, you have to cry. The person who's only crying, what do we say to them? So to them we say, that don't you know, don't you know the the, the prophecy of, of Zechariah, what Hashem promises us, that that Tishabov and, and Tammuz and Tavis and, and 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 all of the all of the uh, all of the morning days of uh, over the temple are going to be overturned and they're going to be days of great rejoicing. That this that that Mashiach, that the Medrash says that Mashiach is born on Tisha b'a. Not only that, but we talked about how by the full moon of each month, you really see the essence of the character of the month. So we have a bunch of examples. An uh, Nisan, we, the 15th is, is Pesach. So that's the, really the, the, the touchstone of the month. Tishri we have Sukkos And Sukkos we know is, is, is the time of our joy And we know that that's the, the culmination Of all the work of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur Adar, the 15th of the month is Purim So really we see that the essence of the month Is reflected on the full moon of that month And we know that the Gemara says That one of the two happiest days of the year There was, Rosh, there was Yom Kippur And Tuba B'Av the 15th of the month of Av Two by the way is an abbreviation Two is, is Taz Vav So Tes is Gematria 9 Vav is 6 so that's 15 so that's that's when we say tûbab that means the 15th of the month there's a simpler way to say it which is and he, ten and five but that's 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 one of god's names so we don't just use it so casually so instead of saying ten and five we say nine and six so you know just the the nuances and the the reverence that that that, that just touches on everything in torah is just beautiful so that's just one small example of it so we see that that tûbab the, the the full moon of av is it shows on Av, it shows that it's one of the happiest months in the entire year, right? So the person who's depressed on Tisha B'Av, we say to them, don't you know how great Av is? How joyous Av is? So, but what do we say to that person who's happy on Tisha B'Av? We say to him, don't you know that the Gomorrah says that a person who doesn't mourn the destruction of Yerushalayim won't be able to celebrate when, 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 it's, when it's redeemed, when it, when, when it becomes rebuilt? Okay, so now we've come full circle. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do? I, I just want to say a, a note before we get to that. Uh, one of my favorite examples, those of you who are movie fans, there's something a little bit about uh, narrative movie structure. Uh, just give you just a look into why does it say that someone who doesn't mourn the destruction of Jerusalem isn't able to uh, to be joyous when it becomes rebuilt and by the way you know we say next year in Yerushalayim at the end of the Pesach Seder do you know the people who have a Seder in Israel, what do they say? they say next year in Yerushalayim even if they're in Jerusalem because when we talk about when we talk about this coming to Yerushalayim we're talking about the perfection of the world so until Mashiach is here, even Yerushalayim, even if we're living in Yerushalayim, that's not the ideal uh, of of Yerushalayim yet. So that's just uh, something to keep in mind. Um, We talk about two aspects, the the, the rabbis talk about two aspects of Jerusalem. There's the Jerusalem below and the Yerushalayim Shalmalah, which is the Yerushalayim above. And that can't be destroyed, and that always exists. Um, but to the extent that the Yerushalayim below isn't in sync with the Yerushalayim above, that's that's where uh, problems kick in, and that's that's true for all of us because we have a, an aspect of ourselves above and an aspect of ourselves below, and it's it's from the, the lack of harmony that exists between those two things that where where problems uh, result, spiritual problems, so to speak. Um, so anyway, let's get back to this movie structure idea. So let's say you're watching a love story, right? And, um, and it's really about, you know, the, the, the whole classic structure is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. <laughs> if you want to not write a movie, that's, follow that path, you won't, you won't go wrong, okay? So imagine you're watching one of these uh, love stories and there's this funny character who works in the grocery store, who's like in a scene toward the beginning of the, the movie. And you're like, that guy makes me laugh. That guy's so funny. And you're watching, you know, he's a total incidental character to the story. And you're watching the whole movie saying, man, I wonder when we're going to see that funny grocery store character again. And the end of the movie is after all sorts of like horrible uh, obstacles and and, and heartbreak, the, the man and the woman finally get together at the end. And and you know people are sobbing in the in the in the audience, and you're disappointed because you're like, hey, where was the grocery store guy? You know, that, I like that guy. So <laughs> so so what's the point? The point is that history history is literally the love story between God and the Jewish people, between God and all of humanity. But the central story, the central theme, the narrative thread, if you will is this love story between God and the Jewish people. And if you're mourning that, if you're mourning the destruction of Israel, if you've got your eye on what this central story is, when the happy ending happens, with the culmination of history, you will be able to, you know, achieve this incredible, you know, catharsis and, 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 and exhilaration. But if you've got your ideas on when the Etruscans, Etruscans, is that how you say it? When the Etruscans are coming back, because you really like their their vases, you know what I mean. <laughs> and it's like I can't wait for another bar relief from those guys because those were cool. <laughs> you know, you're you're missing it all, and you're not going to be able to really celebrate and experience what it means when uh, when when the temple is rebuilt. Okay, so now let's get back to this person who is is, is It seems like we've come uh, full circle. The person who's Who's joyous on, on Tishah B'av because because he knows he knows what the the end result of the day is going to be the joy that eventually is going to come. We say, well, listen, you know, you're living in the next world. Right now, you have to be living in this world too. If there's crying and there's tears and there's brokenness around you, you you, you can't be blind to that. You can't pretend like it doesn't exist. You know, I'll tell you something. See, you know, a person has to be spiritual because they have to recognize that there's more to this world than the, than, the, than the physicality around them. But a person can't be too spiritual because if they're too spiritual, then they become blind to the human suffering that's around them. And they are just uh, they become Pollyanna, Pollyanna, so to speak. It's just like, well, everything is good, and can't you recognize that everything is good? And it's like, that's all well and good, but I'm about to get evicted from my apartment. So how can you tell me everything is good? You know, so so there's this incredible balance that has to take place. You know, it says that, um, you know, it says that 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 everything in the world is to teach us a lesson about serving God. So someone came up to the Alexander Rebbe and they said, "What does atheism teach us about serving God? Because that's the denial of God Himself." So the Alexander Rebbe, it's a famous famous thing, he answered, he said, sometimes you have to pretend like God doesn't exist, and you do it yourself. Something needs to be done, you do it yourself. So so, so that's what atheism teaches us. So I just want to talk a little bit more about this this idea of, of not being too spiritual, so to speak. Um, so so let's go into this because this really touches upon what we're talking about reconciling these these two these two poles of of balancing all of these different emotions that we're experiencing on Tisha B'od, and in life in general between this notion of being in exile but this idea that Hashem is always with us so that in, in, in on some level there's this aspect of redemption that's always with us So, we know that Abraham Avinu, Abraham, our father, had ten tests of increasing magnitude. So, the traditional way of learning it out, the standard way of learning it out, is that the tenth test was the Akedus Yitzchak, that that's where his son Isaac, who he had when he was 99 or 100 years old, I guess 100 years old, and who was to be the heir of of Judaism in, in the world, and, uh, Everyone knows the story. So Hashem tells him, you know, put your son up as a sacrifice. So anyway, without going into all the details of the story, we all know it, this was the, 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 the greatest, hardest challenge that was ever asked of anyone ever. And so we say this was the tenth test. But believe it or not, there's another way that the rabbis learn it out, that that's the ninth test, actually. And that the tenth test is what comes right afterwards in, uh, in, in the Chumash which is in the beginning of uh, 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 yeah. Chayisar which, um, which is talking about um... Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us. So I just started an idea so I'm going to backtrack. So, so the idea is that Abraham Avinu had 10 tests. We're talking about what the, what the model state of consciousness for a Jew is. So there are 10 tests So most people learn out that the 10th hardest test Was the binding of his son Yitzhak, Right? The sacrifice of Yitzhak. But there's a way of learning it out That that was the ninth test And that the 10th test was buying The cave, Moras Hamach Pelah The burial place for Sir Okay? So, so he had to buy it from Someone named Ephron, um, Who was a very difficult businessman And he had a very complicated Business uh, negotiation with him. So I think most of us would ask, how can you possibly learn that 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 was more difficult? <laughs> I mean, I understand if you want to say it was the te- just the tenth test, but if we if we're working within this paradigm that each te- test was harder than the previous, what sense does it possibly make that a difficult business negotiation was harder than... Then the sac- remember Abraham Avedo one of his central things was he was traveling around the world talking about railing against this idea of sacrificing your children right like the greatest evil and now all of a sudden he's, and he became world famous he, he counseled kings his whole honor his whole pride everything that he stood for at an advanced age was being asked to be overturned as uh, he was to embrace this practice seemingly which was the worst the lowest right have so I mean no tests had to be an event an increase difficulty this is this is like how they learn it out that's okay. how they learn it out so say that the yeah. higher level you the higher test you get yeah that's also a principle yeah so okay so I'll give you the answer that I heard <clears throat> I heard it from Rabbi Friend an amazing amazing answer and this is really central to like we say what our level of consciousness has to be everyday really which is that you know, it's one thing to rise to the highest heights in terms of consciousness, to leave this world, so to speak, to go to transcend this world, so to speak. But that's not the end. That's not the end. The end is to take that level of consciousness and to bring it back down into this world and to be able to apply it. Even in a situation where you have a nudnik who you're negotiating with, you know, at the at the airline ticket counter, right? Who's making you crazy. That's the highest to apply to apply these these transcendent character traits in this world. That's what it means. That's what it means. That's how you learn out that that's the tenth test because there are people who can reach the ninth level. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes, you know, here, I'll give you an example. Let's use it in terms of a recipe right now. You ever see those catalogs that have pieces of meat in it? From like, Iowa? Mm -hmm. Some of them, it's like, I never thought meat could be beautiful. You know, sometimes it's like, you look at these cuts of meat, and it's like, it's beautiful, you know? So, so sometimes you can describe a, 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 a recipe to someone, or you can even show them. We're gonna you walk them through a butcher shop. You say we're gonna imagine it or, or a catalog. We're gonna use this piece of meat, and we've got the finest you know mustard from you know France, and this that and the other thing. And you're able to you're able to look at it, and it's sort of like you're you're able to imagine it. It's great. Now imagine that someone's actually making the recipe, and it's only it's only partly done. The meat is still raw. All the things haven't quite cooked in. And you say, do you know how great this is going to be? Taste it. And it's sort of like, oh, it tastes disgusting, right? Uh And then you cook it another hour and it's magnificent. It's It's like completely gourmet. Okay? Sometimes we see someone who's spiritual, who gets to that ninth level, say, who's transcendent, but isn't able to bring it back down into the world? Right? And it's they're the worst role models in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they're partly cooked. They're partly cooked. And the irony is the irony is that they make a worse impression than if they were than if we were just talking about the general ideas and they hadn't begun practicing them yet. If you were just showing them the ingredients. Right? They could imagine and go, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a beautiful way to live and everything like that." But when a person is like this, almost there, but really not there, it's 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 it's, it's tragic. It's tragic. So, so yeah. What do we see in the buying of Maratantola that he would even test it in a way that he would need to? Use this transcend it's, it's really you know it's totally yeah that. No. yeah because um, well for one he got the field for two you never see a fight between them they never fight he never loses patience with him in the beginning if you look at the story the story's very clear it's all in the narrative you don't have to even look at the midrashim or anything like that it's uh, he begins Ephron begins by telling him you're you're like a king you're like amazing. Just point it's such an honor for you to be among us. Point to whatever you want and it's yours for free. Right. And by the end of the story, he's in- insisting on the most exorbitant fee. <laughs> and Abraham pays it. Right. He ends up paying it because for whatever reason he had his intentions, you know? So so yeah, it was a very it was a very difficult guy. I mean the guy was a very the Chachanim the, the are, are very down on Ephraim. In fact that we learn out something like them. Which is that he's the opposite. We have a principle which is say little and do much. Right. You know, a lot of people are into talking about everything they're going to do and then they don't do it. So, so they say that Ephraim is the exemplar of the, of the, of the downside of that. Um, yes, sir. Um, didn't they, uh, the, someone told me about the whole uh, buying of, of the land in Israel. Yeah. It was a big mistake even on Abram's part if you look at all these places that were bought today those are actually the places that we have the biggest problem that was Hebron which is a hot spot yeah Yeah. so you have two sides of it what you're saying is one side which is that if Hashem already gave us this land what, what is he doing buying the land because that seems to show a lack of faith because if it's already ours what are we paying for it for so that's one side of it and then the other side of it is Abraham Avinu wanted to show, in other words, saying it's ours because God gave it to us, that's very good for us, because we believe, but what about the people who don't, don't have that tradition and don't believe that's the truth? So Abraham wanted to make it unmistakable, in their eyes as well, who owns this land? So by purchasing it, he would show the nations for all time that we bought it legitimately and that it belongs to us. So that's the other side of it. That's, 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 that's why he bought it, they say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, something I heard, it may even have been from you, yeah. and if it isn't, it's from Michael Ripper. That And it has to do with the sad conflict that parents have open children, but they don't have with the grand they children, that, 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 that kind of dynamic, right? So. Uh, for learned in the name of that unknown that if, if uh, Hashem had said, Sacrifice your grandchild, it was produced. Okay, yeah. That relationship between the, those okay. two generations supposed to be... Listen, if Hashem asked him to sacrifice his grandchild, you know. I don't know. It's, it's, it sounds like we're entering into the realm of speculation here. So, so I mean, I, I, I hear the point. There, there is a special dynamic between a grandson and a grandfather, but I, I don't. I, I would be careful of how to apply it. So, um, so anyway. So I want to get back to Tisha B'av. I want to get back to Tisha B'av and this idea of how are we reconciling these two very extreme emotions? On the one hand, we know that Mashiach is born on Tisha B'av, that's the Medrash and that, and that Av is going to be one of the greatest, most joyous months on the other hand we've got to be sad so Rabbi Wolfson you know there aren't many there are certain parts of the Jewish world that we don't have uh, uh, as ready access to and Rabbi Wolfson is, is, is very, among many other uh, areas he's very great in this that he allows us to cull very valuable information from very different holy parts of the Jewish people so he gives us the practice of the father-in-law of the Satmer you know, which was, which was the following, that he would say, we mentioned it yesterday, what would he do on Tisha B'Av? He would take, remember because he's trying to balance these two ideas. It's a holiday, it's the greatest day of sadness. He would take a Kiddush cup, because one day we're going to make Kiddush on Tisha B'Av, right? Because it's a holiday, just like every other holiday. He would take an empty Kiddush cup, and he would make Kiddush I mean, he wouldn't say break for your cup, and obviously, because it was empty, he would make kiddush on this empty tish, on this empty kiddush cup. So, in other words, and then he would cry over the fact that that the cup was empty. So, in other words, simultaneously, I'll tell you, it's all mixed up in there now. So, so, so here he found a way to reconcile these these. Uh, these two aspects of the day, and then he would cry, you know. So, so now I want to turn to. So I'll give you the the, the final thought on this, and then I want to turn to to uh, another aspect of Tisha B'Av, how we reconcile this, and we'll go maybe a little bit deeper into sort of the what they call the Mahus of the day, the 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 essence of the day. So, so Reb Shlomo said it and it's just a foundation in general I'll, I'll preface it with these words but you know the famous thing that it says that in the Gemara that that when 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 Adar comes in which is the month of our joy we increase in, in Simcha and when Ab comes in we decrease in Simcha and so I wish I could quote it by name a, a very great person pointed out that you see that it doesn't say by Adar which is the month of Purim that you increase in happiness and Av, you increase in sadness. It says you decrease in happiness in Av. In other words, Simcha, this state of joy, is the benchmark. That is the central state of consciousness that a person has to have all year long. Now, sometimes you'll increase in it, sometimes you'll decrease in it, but it always has to be on the wavelength of Simcha, of joy. Very, very essential teaching. Now with that in mind, Reb Shlomo gives a piece of advice and I'm applying it to Av because it it, it speaks to it directly but I don't think that that was the context when he said this. He said that a a Yid, a Jew, has to be happy in the inside of his heart and be crying with the outside of his heart. And that is a state of self-mastery that is... uh, it's not so simple. But you see that you're that, that it's possible and even preferable to be able to hold on to these dual these dual states. But while the simcha will always take precedence, you know it says in Pahelis, that's the wisdom of King Solomon that the more a person knows, the more the more knowledge, the more pain because the more you know you know they say ignorance is bliss but ignorance we don't embrace ignorance as a religion but the more we know about other people the more we know about the world the more we're acquainted with all of the brokenness and, and so it comes it comes at a press so but at the, on the other hand we know that God is good and that God is always there so that's the that's the duality that's the duality that we live with but the inside of thou heart has to always be the simka.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's that's his big thing. That's his big thing. That's the Kao gadol. The the, the the great central principle is that a person always has to be the simka. Alright, so now let's talk about something very interesting. We're gonna get a little more um, technical here, so I just ask you to concentrate. <clears throat> Which is that we have We have this practice uh, of putting on tefillin on uh, Tisha B'Av. But we don't put it on in the normal way. The actual wrapping is done in the normal way, and the blessings are said in the normal way. However, we don't put it on in the morning. We put it on by mincha. So now the question is, and that's unique for the entire year. So now the question is, why aren't we putting on tefillin in the morning? Okay? And now, interestingly, there are two schools of thought of when to put it on in the afternoon. The first is, as soon as you possibly can. And the second is, as late as you possibly can. So what's going on in terms of that? Okay? It would seem to be a no... For me, always, it would seem to be a no-brainer. Which is that, you know, if you're really connected to tefillin, when you don't put it on, you feel like something's like off in your life. You know what I mean? It's like... Like you didn't, like it's something's, you know, you, you, you don't feel right. So it would make sense that, and it's a big mitzvah, put it on as soon as possible. But then we have this idea, which is, no, well, maybe put it on as late as possible. So, so what's going on there? Okay, so now listen to this. Listen to what Rabbi Wilson says. Okay, first let me give you the conventional sort of knowledge so that you can properly appreciate what he's adding. The conventional thing is that the essence of the destruction took place in the morning part, okay, and therefore we're not putting it on then, and once Chatzot comes, midday comes, which is about 1pm, then we can sit on a chair, remember before Chatzot we can't sit on chairs, then we can sit on a chair, then we're out of this sort of the most intense period of morning, then we can put on tefillin, these type of things. So what's going on in terms of the morning, uh, the the early part of the day? So he says, "Well, listen, and this is this is you know when you hear it, it's going to sound so simple and so obvious, but it certainly never occurred to me in a million years." He says, "We have this tradition that Mashiach comes on Tisha B'av. So so we know that on a holiday, meaning Pesach, Sukkot." Shabbos right Shavuos we don't put on tefillin on those dates and that Tisha B'av is going to become an open an openly clear holiday so in the morning which is the most intense part of the Tisha B'av-ness of the day and we're going to go into this thought a little bit more in depth in a, in a moment since the most intense part of Tisha B'av is in the morning part that means the most intense part of the holiday part right, because it's the most intense aspect of the day every aspect of the day is also in the morning which means that we don't want to put on tefillin yet because Mashiach might come and it might become an open holiday where we don't put on tefillin on that day so we're not putting on tefillin that day because we're still waiting for Mashiach to show up so if that's the case, now you clearly understand why there's the school of thought that's waiting all day to the last moment to put on to fill it, because we're not giving up hope that Mashiach is coming on that day, and that's the day where we'll see we're not supposed to put on to fill it. Something very beautiful, yeah. Isn't aren't yeah. there like a, like lots of different times when Mashiach is supposed to come? I think say on to say on. Chavis, I'm other holidays, they say, like, oh, you know, my going to come on this time, or whatever. Right. I mean, it's so yes. just one of the one of the stories we have, is that he'll come on just above. Yes, but 100%. Expect him every day, every minute. That's also but, true. So and, yeah. a, and then we'll yes. know three days in advance, so if we didn't hear three days before, just above, then, you know... Then he's not coming on Tishah. Maybe he'll just be announced. he will be coming three days from now. Uh, I never heard the three day thing. Yeah, we'll is- be told three days so we can prepare for his coming. Yeah, uh, Lord, uh, there's all these things. You know what they say by things like that, like the like the like the, L- like the Lubavitcher Rebbe says. There, there's a tradition that Mashiach won't come on Shabbos, right? And there's a tradition that he will come on Shabbos. Right? So, so uh, I haven't heard the one that he will come on yeah, Shabbos, maybe. but. Mark Gruber said, you know, about the... Mark Ruber says Mm -hmm. the big big difference between Jews and Christians is that we're waiting for the Mashiach and they're waiting for him to come again. So when he gets there, we'll ask if he's been here before. Well, I'll tell you, on on that point, our tradition is, this is actually something that everyone should know, is that we, we, we have a very strong tradition that Mashiach is always with us. It's just a question of whether Hashem will call on him to act. And it's likely that Mashiach doesn't know that he's Mashiach. Um, so, but the the notion is is that it can happen at any time, and that you know the the the, the potential is always there. What I would say, did you want to answer me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to ask. Yeah. well, uh, As far as I know, the Mashiach, we he needs to fulfill certain requirements, right? right? Like to build the third temple, yes. The, the Right, that's the ramble. So, yeah. so how it how do we know that he's Mashiach before he fulfills those requirements? right so you're right so you're right so technically speaking we wouldn't know but if if we hear Eliyahu announce (laughs) that this is Mashiach and it certainly looks like Mashiach you know so you know like we say we'll get the details let them come and then we'll 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 figure out how that shims with the Rambam you know what I mean um but you're right these are all technical things but the point is is that see the more you get into Torah, and the more you realize how halakha works and how we function as a people, the the more admiration you have, because we are balancing the most idealistic, you know, world transformational, like messianic, you know, utopian ideals, and at the same time, simultaneously, we're applying them in the most detailed, detailed halachic ways, with ramifications everywhere. So we talked about it before, that that sometimes you have nice ideas, but you have to see, if you want to be serious about Torah, you have to see where they land in halacha. In other words, when does it cease to become a nice thought, and where do you see it actually in halacha? So, so what Rabbi Wolfson is suggesting here Is that while it's true we have different traditions of when Mashiach is going to come, he's suggesting here that you're actually seeing it in Halakha itself by our not putting on tefillah. So so that reconciliation, that reconciliation of of the most conceptual things, and like for instance, you know, without knocking uh, without knocking another faith, um now you know I'm about to knock another face, yeah. right? so, <laughs> This notion of... <laughs> this notion of... Love your neighbor as yourself. It's like, first of all, that's a pasuk in the Torah. You know? Or don't do what's hateful to someone else. That's, that's hateful to... No, don't do what's hateful to you to someone else. It's actually a more specific idea. That's... That's, that's meaningless. It's totally meaningless. Because it's totally subjective. What, what, what don't I like? What do I like? You know? I mean, is there a bad person in the world who thinks that he's bad? Probably. Maybe. I, I think there's a larger percentage of bad people who think they're good. You know? And so, and, and so you have people applying the most, uh, you know, random, random or, or, or uh, inexact standards. And what's so awesome about Torah is that we actually take a stand and we actually say, okay, and, and, well, we say this is just the divine wisdom that we aren't arbitrarily coming up with it; that Hashem has told us specifically what, how, to, how, to be, how to behave. Yeah, what a good, and, yeah, what a good person is. So you the question I was putting on long earlier. So well, I tell you something. Once you hear this thought, it's hard. It's, it's hard to put it on early, because it sounds like you're giving up the shit, You know, <laughs> you know. I don't know what I'm going to do this year because I've always run to put it on. So I, I it's going to be now that I know this thought. I got to, I got to see where I'm holding. You know. So, um, so because in a way, it's more heartbreaking than to put it on at the end of the day. You'll really feel. I mean, you're going to feel the day a lot more strongly. Okay, so now I want to get into something a little more, um, a little more Kabbalistic right now, which is, which is this idea, it sounded, I kind of blew by it about a few minutes ago, which is this idea that, um, that the most intense part of the day, which is when all the destruction is happening in the morning, would seemingly also simultaneously be the greatest revelation of the happiness of the day. Because we're still thinking Mashiach can show up any moment right now. And that it's really this yent, yent of quality. You know, so how are these two things coexisting? They sound like absolutely irreconcilable opposites. This is either the worst part of the day. How are you telling me that this is the best part of the day? How do you, how do you reconcile those things? So, so I'd, like to, I'd like to give an example. Or I'd like to try to explain it in the following way. Which is that um, it says in Gomorrah Megillah that... Uh, you know, you see two words in the Torah um, And both of these words are very interesting Because both of them are comprised of the letters of the Yudkei Babkei So both of these words contain Hashem's name in the, in the Yudkei babke, The same osios, the same letters okay? With one small difference, and we'll get into it in a moment Which is that there's the word vayehi, And there's the word Vahaya okay? And they mean two very different things vayihi portends something negative is about to happen ok so, so an example would be like the uh, the Megillus Esther begins with vayihi Beme Achishverus in the days of Achishverus and then it talks about starts to go into the decree of the destruction that was laid down against the Jews of course we know there's a happy ending but, um, but that's one example and there, the Gemara goes through many examples of how Vahi signals something negative is about to happen. Then you have this other word vahaya, like the beginning of the second paragraph of the Shema, vahaya in Shema, which is all the all the good things that are going to happen. So, 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 so now let's look at the letters. Vahaya is a an arrangement, a different. Arrangement of all, that has all the letters of Hashem's name. In it. Okay, so it makes sense that that signals something good. If you um, if you rearrange it, it's vav hey yud hey. So if you rearrange it, it's yud hey and vav hey. So it's very it's very clear. All the all the words are are right in there. Holy smokes! You know, that's—I just realized something. That's unbelievable. So that's the combination for the month of Av. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. and So there's another aspect. There's another aspect that Av is going to turn around and be this great month. You know, right there. Okay. So. Okay. I think I so, yeah. Uh, is yeah. is the Yeah. Right. We, we, we conversation Yeah. The so you're saying which is the aspect of Allah. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. So Vayyahi now. Vayyahi is a little more tricky. Vayyahi has two yuds, but only one hay. Okay. Now I heard from Reb Shlomo that hay is a vessel. He stands for a vessel. So when we talk about the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He all the rabbis say that the bottom He stands for this world. The top Yud is talking about the most supernal of lights that's coming down and it's sort of like trickling through you know, all the worlds, all the cosmos and it becomes comes into this world. And I also heard in the name of Reb Tzadaka Khon that you have the top hay, Yud and hay; that the top he stands for Olam Abba. So that also we can see how that would also be a vessel for Hashem's light. That that's a realm, that's a heavenly realm, which is getting that, that initial Yud in it, that initial most supernal light in it. And so as a repository of that most supernal light, it becomes a great place to be. That's, that's Gan Eden. That's that's you know this incredible ethereal place. And then the bug and then the hay. And the bottom hay is holding all that light. So in other words, you have a very nice structure where you have two vessels holding all of that light from the initial supernal yud, which is radiating and pouring down all this light. Are are we all with that? Everyone has that? Okay. So now listen to this situation. In the word Vayahi, you have two yuds, but only one he. So in other words, you literally have this increased outpouring of light without the proper kailin, without the proper vessels to hold it. In other words, in the yud key you have one Yud and two hays to hold all the light. In Vayahi, you have two Yud's and only one hay. And of course we know, we're all familiar with this sort of like Kabbalistic notion of how the universe was created, that when Hashem shone this supernal light into the into the kalim, and the kalim broke because they couldn't hold the light. And that that's what we're doing in terms of this world, is that we're, we're we're lifting up all the sparks of holiness that have been scattered all over the universe, all through time. So now, now understand when there's something that's seemingly tragic or bad happening, a Bayahi moment in our life, it's not that it's bad, so to speak. It's that there's too much light and we don't have the vessels to hold the light. So now we can return to the morning of Tisha B'av and understand how you can have these two notions coexisting together. That you have this idea that it's the, it's, it's the morning, it's, it's, the, it's the most intense period of the day. And on the other hand, but it's also the most yentivtik part of the day. Because that inside part of the light, we weren't able to hold it. Because we weren't on the level to, to, to be able to receive, to be able to keep the temple, to be able to keep all these brokas. And so, as, as a level of fixing, we had to lose them. I mean, that's a whole topic in itself. But that shattering is part of the goodness of our ultimate fixing. But that's the the quality that we haven't been able to hold on to. That's right there in the day. That's the Mashiach is about to show up. So how can you put on your tefillin? Because it could be a hunter. Both of those existing right in the moment. So, so I started off by saying that, you know, but they say a Jew is just like everyone else, only so, And like Tisha B'Av, it's like every other time in the year in a sense. Only more so. Because every single day we have this notion, as you pointed out, that Mashiach can, can come at any moment. But if a person is, 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 is a sensitive, real person, they're not just going up to the, the ninth test, right, of, 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 of being able to have the greatness of, of transcending this world, they are on the level of bringing that light down back into this world. And so and so while Mashiach could show up any moment, and that's how we live, and that's the first question that, one of, not the first, but one of the questions that we're going to be asked, the Gemara tells us in the next work, did you await the coming of Mashiach every day? So while that's a central part of our consciousness, at the same time though, we, we have to be in tune with other people's sadness. And so, we'll just end by returning to what I think is the, for me at this stage of my understanding, the final word on this. Just to repeat the words of Reb Shlomo. That on the inside of our hearts, we have to be besimcha, and if we have to cry, we can cry with the outside of our hearts. And you know, you know, it's like, We we'll just stop there. But the-